My guest today has been described as a phenomenal sales leader because she blends in a strategic selling with an empathetic team first approach. She makes everyone on the team feel valued and accepted. Here's another one of the many glowing testaments to her leadership skills and presence. Her management style is one of integrity, personality and positivity. She encourages personal and professional development within her team and will always put the team first under any circumstance. She's not just a great manager, she's a leader, a friend and a mentor. She's always willing to go the extra mile without a second thought and as a result, she continues to deliver impressive results. She's currently head of sales for Zealous, having previously served in leadership roles for Salesforce, Core HR and Oracle. Roshin Corrigan, you're very welcome. What a lovely welcome. <laughs> Who said those things about me? <laughs> They're on your LinkedIn profile and, me and many more too. You should read them. You know those mornings you wake up and you're kind of going, oh, it's Monday. Mm -hmm. Just go read your LinkedIn testimonials and I wow. tell you, that will give you a lift. I wish I, I wish I could have taken many more. It's just, we do I think that's time. more a sign and of the fabulous. You're all going. It's a real sign of the fabulous people I work with, I think. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is a lot of them are in the same vein in terms of the kind of things they're picking out. And that's, I, I do want to explore that with you today in terms of, well, what are those, what is your leadership style? Uh, what is it you feel that people are drawn to in a good leader? We'll talk about that. I'd like to first of all maybe get to know uh, Little Roshin, where you grew up, what you're like as a kid, what were your kind of things you were into, hobbies and interests. Yeah. Maybe we could yeah. start there. Absolutely. So I grew up in Ireland um, in County Loud in a small little country place called Toher. Um, it was literally in the middle of fields. We were about five miles from a bus stop and a town or a village, I would say, and probably about 10, 15. So I guess in some senses, I had a very idyllic childhood in the sense of it was very free and easy. You know, it was a very kind of safe environment I grew up in. Um, two great parents, really, really, really great parents. Um, one of five children, um, second oldest. Um, what was I like as a kid? <laughs> A mix between, I probably quite well behaved, but a brat at the same time. <laughs> um, I was always very, I would say it was interesting, right? Because I grew up in what I thought was a very normal home. And I guess to me, as a child growing up, right, where you grow up is your normal. And I guess it was the first time I realized that actually <clears throat> your experience of life isn't everybody's experience of life. Um, and I always remember an incident when it was one of my friends came to visit. I was probably about eight or nine years old. And my friend came into our kitchen at home in Ireland. And my dad is standing in the kitchen. Now, this is probably late 70s, maybe early 80s in Ireland. My dad is standing in the kitchen with his apron on him. The cooking, the, the, the dinner has been cooked behind him. He's cooking the spuds and whatever. Very Irish with the spuds. And then he's also ironing at the same time. And my friend walked into the kitchen and she went... Why is your dad cooking and doing the ironing? And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, I've never seen my dad in the kitchen. And it was like, I guess, you know, at that time in Ireland, the very traditional home was, you know, the mum stayed at home and took care of the family and the dad went out and worked. Whereas I was one of five kids under the age of 10. And my dad was very much the stay-at-home father. So I guess in, in that sense, I grew up in a kind of, at that time would have been very non-traditional. And I think I'd probably, as a result, have kind of, I don't have the typical traditional values. Um, I was always one who kind of, I 
don't know where it came from, but I always strove for fairness and equality as well, and probably a little bit from my mum, right? And I always remember um, my brother was an altar boy, and this was long before altar girls were allowed in Ireland. But I was sitting watching my brother, like Matthew, doing it. He used to go and do funerals and weddings, but he was always getting paid for these. So I'm a 10 or 11 years of old, and I'm going, well, can I do that too? And it was kind of like, well, no, you can't because you're a girl, you're not allowed to. Which didn't land very well with me, even at nine or ten years of age. And I remember going to my mum and saying, Mam, mum, can I not do it? Can I not do it? Like, and I don't give up either. And so mum, like very kindly, went and asked the local parish priest. So the parish priest came into the school one day and he said, I'm here to like get the new altar boys and girls, etc. Or the altar boys. And he said, is Oshin Corrigan here? And I went, that would be me, but it's Roisin. And he went, come on ahead. Yeah. Wow, that. That, that was actually, for that time, I, I was an altar boy yeah. myself. And uh, that's, uh, that for the time was, was unusual. It, wasn't. it really was. I mean, late 70s, that kind of thing didn't mm -hmm. happen. It was probably very early 80s, but it wasn't actually allowed. So my mom, I always remember when the first altar girl was allowed in the Catholic Church in Ireland, my mom actually was on the front of the Irish independent newspaper. And my mom sent me a clip and she said, you missed your moment of glory. <laughs> But it was, I don't know, I've always been one of those people who challenged the status quo. I remember like my first day in secondary school and it was a co-education school. And the time the girls' uniform was to wear this lovely skirt and the boys wore trousers. And of course, I went in with my trousers on straight into the headmaster's office. And he's like, he said, you can't do this. This is the boys' uniform and this is the girls' uniform, et cetera, et cetera. And I went, well, actually, you can't do that. You can't tell me because I'm a girl that I can't do it and the boys can't. And I do, I do, I'm not quite sure, it probably came from that non-traditional home and like challenging the status quo. But I was always one that was kind of, you know, said, well, you can't do that subject mm. or this subject. I was like, no, I can. And I always asked, yeah. and I think I learned early on in life, just because somebody yeah. says something doesn't make it the case. And if you don't feel it's right and you don't feel it's fair, ask the question. Yeah. So I'm curious, Roisin, yeah. you're talking about your relationship with your parents. You mentioned that your parents uh, were really good parents and that your father, there was, you saw it as just normal, but to the yes. outside world, it, it, was, it was, for the times, it was different. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, your, your own personality traits, you said you were quite forward. And, and by the way, that's something else I want to come back to, this whole idea of uh -oh. if, if a young guy is, is, is forward, he's headstrong. If it's yeah. a young girl, she's stroppy. I don't know if you've oh. ever got that. Yeah. No. I, did. I probably didn't really that. care, Paul. <laughs> no, I, I'm just curious because it drives my wife nuts because her father used to always say she was dropping out. She was just one of three girls. So yeah. in that sense, she didn't have anything to go off. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to know if that your, your parents were big factors in your personality traits or, or were you just, they were just part of who you are? A hundred percent, hundred percent. I think both of them, I think, you know, if you look at one, I, as I talk to people, you know, as I manage people, and I, I, I always look for feedback as well. Like, even when I'm doing this, I ask people for feedback. And the one thing I always get is fairness, kindness, and treating people well. And I would say they would be real mantras from my parents. Like, my mom and dad would always say, treat everybody else as you wanted to be treated, as you would like to be treated. And I've always brought that through my life, you know. When you talk to somebody... And I think, you know, I think my mum probably be being the kind of 
I also remember wearing an apron that used to say breadwinner. I didn't know what it meant as a child, but I do now. <laughs> so I guess that, you know, probably subliminally and unknown to me, it probably most definitely would have yeah. done. Um, um, my dad was always one for, you know, like whilst he, he didn't work in our early childhood, he obviously did later on when we were all going to school and he wasn't staying at home with us. But he, they were both really grafters, like really hard workers. Like, so yeah. I guess, you know, my dad didn't always have the opportunities he wanted in life, but his big thing was always his children would not miss out on the opportunities. He left school at 12, like very young in Ireland at the time. But he was always like, I never had the opportunity to go to university and you will absolutely have those opportunities. And even, I guess at the time where I went to school in Ireland, I was probably only one or two who actually left school straight into university at the time. So it was quite unusual, even then where I grew up. And I guess the school was a great school, but it wasn't a big, I guess I was only one or two that went straight into university. Other people went on to colleges. So I think they always kind of instilled in us that drive and that anything is possible. Yeah. And that, you know, if you go after it and work hard for it, you can absolutely achieve it. Talk to me about your mother then, because if your father was in a non-traditional role, that reflected on your mother too. I'm sure yeah. people were looking at her, judging her role in that relationship as well, if it was a non-traditional role. I'm just wondering from her perspective what that was like. Well, you know, it's probably an interesting question for me to ask my mom. Like it wasn't, but it was never came. We never felt that at home. Do you know what I mean? It was never, we never felt that that was different or unusual or otherwise. So I guess, you know, I'm sure, you know, she, she was up every morning getting five kids out to school, like, and, you know, she worked full time. And then, you know, when dad was back, she was doing both working as a school teacher and doing that. But I don't know for mom, actually, you know, I don't think, I'm sure they maybe did do, but I don't think my mom would be a bit like me. I'm not sure she would have really cared. <laughs> my my mom is a great sense of humour and she's a great element of enjoying life and enjoying people. So I think for me, I'm probably quite like my mom, actually, in that aspect and that. You know, you can't wait, you can't like spend your life thinking about what everybody else thinks of you and what everybody else wants for you. At the end of the day, it's your life. But always my, my poor dad would be saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. And dad would leave the room and mama go, you should do whatever you want. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and there's a bit of, right, that's probably where I get my kind of like the devilment and the fun and kind of, yeah. look, we've lived our lives. This is your life. You know, yeah. you've got to live it for you, for what you want to do, not for us. Yeah. Do you think that's the, the, the key to success is not caring what other people think, that you're free to explore and, and, and be creative when you stop caring about what other people think of you? Yeah. I mean, we talk about, right, and I know you and I have spoke before a little bit at the start of this about things that happen in life that have a you know, fundamental impact on you. And I remember like in my late 20s, early 30s, I was like, you know, I was doing well. I had a decent job. I was getting up every day. You go to work, you come home, you have a great group of friends. You go out in the weekend, enjoy yourself. But I always had this thing, there's got to be more to life. There's got to be more to life. This is quite mundane. And a few of my friends had done a course called Landmark Education. And I remember at the time, they all had done this course and they kind of came out of the course and were like, really got into action to live lives they really wanted to live. So I was like, they'd tried to get me to have a look at a few times. I was like, no, no, no. And I remember eventually I said, right, I'll go and do this course. And you really, it was interesting because you spend three days in a room, right? And the only thing you look at for three days is who am I and who am I being? And you really get to look at, like, how often in life do you put yourself into a room for three days just to turn yourself inside out, look at who you 
are, why do I do what I do? And why do I behave the way I behave? And do I do it as a result of things? And I, I suddenly believe that that's who I am, but actually that's not who you are. You can be whoever you want to be. That's just something happened and you made a decision. And so that's how you, and after a while you really think, oh, that's just who I am. And I think that was a really interesting time because you understand that actually something happened and I made a decision and I think that's who I am, but that's not who I am. I can choose to be whoever I want to be. And it's a really kind of powerful context to live your life. And you get to see as well how consumed you are by everybody else's opinion of you. And you can, I kind of thought I'd spent a bit of my life while I was quite free, almost been a bit of a chameleon, right? Because you're trying to think about who, you know, in this room of people, I'm this person, and you know, work on like this. And I think from there on, I actually got really comfortable with being my authentic self and who I want to be in the world. And I'm totally fine with that. What did you learn about yourself? Uh, you mentioned your authentic self, but what did you learn about yeah. yourself through that process and what changed? I think I got to see, though, I was being a chameleon, that I was quite consumed with what other people thought of me and other people's opinions of me were actually... And if I carried on the way I had been up until that point, I would have spent my life living my life for what I thought other people wanted, as opposed to, hang on a second, what's important to me? Who do I want to be in the world? And it's not the doing that's important, it's the being. And explain who, that, just expand on that, 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 that it's not the doing, it's the being. Yeah, so you can do stuff all day long, but any, you know, people think if we do something, you'll have something, then you'll be a certain way. Right. But actually, you can be who you want to be like that. And you don't have to do anything to have something. And it's who you're being. So, you know, you can say something to somebody and if your being behind it isn't very nice, that will land. And you can say the exact same thing. But if you're being really generous to that person, it lands very differently. So I think I don't think about what needs to be done. I think about who I need to be. So who do I need to be in order to this to be successful? Who do I need to be, you know, to to kind of, I guess, land a message? Who do I need to be for a communication to be powerful? It's not doing of the communication, it's the being behind it, if that makes sense? It, it, it absolutely does. And what I'm guessing is that, there's a, that, that what you do then comes from that, but you start with the being. being. Interesting. I, I remember a guy said to me once, and I thought it was a great expression. He says, I want to be the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a big animal lover, so I would love it if I could be the person my dogs think I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so out of that process, you, you got a better sense of, of who you wanted to be. Yeah. What, yeah. So what was that? What, you know, did you come out of that going, I want to be in sales? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> because it doesn't really matter what you do in the world, right? It's who you're okay. behind it. Like in every conversation you have, um, you know, I guess I want, I realized I wanted to be three things. I want to have, I want to be someone who's creates fun. I want to be someone who's kind. Mm. And I want to be someone who is, if you have an opportunity to have an impact positively in somebody's life, that I will be that. And is that something that you have to work at continuously? Yes, because things happen in everyday life that get you riled up and give you, you can either react to it, right? And we all react because, you know, somebody says something you don't like and, you know, and you have bad days and you've off days and things that happen that make you uncomfortable. But it's remembering that it is a choice and you can choose it in any moment. 
That makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. I want to talk and to you, you a little bit. And you do have to remind yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that because you're like, life distracts you and you get pulled yeah. off in different directions and you, you have to recenter a lot in terms of yeah. that. But I think it's a, it's, it sounds simple, but it probably isn't. But yeah. that, that centering yourself because you have to have a sense of who you are and who you want to be as well at the same time. Yeah. And without yeah. that, there's no true north. Yeah. And if I think about, you know, some of the challenges I find, like for me, as, as I moved into my career and moved up, one of the things as a leader that I find really hard is those difficult conversations you have to have with people. You know, it's easy to lead a great team and be a leader when everything is brilliant and fabulous. It's much more difficult to be a great leader when you're in challenging times and when people are maybe not performing or somebody's been hired into a role which you realise over time maybe isn't the best role for them. And having those challenging conversations was a big, I find really difficult initially. Um, and you almost have to like think, for me, I always think in those situations, if this was a member of my family, right, if this was one of my brothers or one of my sisters and somebody was having to have that conversation with them, how would I like them to be spoken to? And that's who I'd be then in that moment of those conversations. I speak to them in a way that, you know, because I think sometimes when you get into those difficult conversations, because you're, you're so tense and you don't want to do it, it becomes a bit kind of formal almost. And you forget to be the human element of yourself and you forget to be humane with that other person. So for me, I think when I think of from that mindset, it really helps create a much more human, I guess almost gentle and kinder element to the conversation. And, you know, talking to people about, you know, having that conversation in that way and being that for that person instead of being very, I guess, almost cold and kind of factual, yeah. I think can make but, a big difference. But that detachment is there for a reason. It's because having that empathetic conversation mm. must be extremely difficult. It must be draining on you when you have it. Yeah, it is. But I think, you know, over time, you kind of think and realise if you keep somebody in a role or if you, if you don't give somebody the honest truth, if you don't be really clear with them. Um, and the thing, the feedback I think I've had from people is that I will really generously give my time, though, to kind of either help them, fill the, you know, kind of coach them to get to the next level to where they need to be if they're not there. Or I'll have the really straight conversation and say, look, I don't think this is working out. How do you feel about it? But then equally say, I think you'd actually be amazing at this. And I have lots of contacts in and really work with them to help move them into another role that you think or they, you know, that they would A like, but B, you could see they could be really successful with their current skill set. Mm. I think it's going that extra mile in those difficult conversations, not just saying sorry and leaving at that. It's actually stepping into it with them and helping them find that next kind of role that they would actually be really successful in. Yeah. I'm curious to know also, because one of the things I often I have seen over the years in sales organizations is where, for whatever reason, there'll be the top management will open up headcount and it'll be higher, 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 higher. <laughs> and you have to sit through 10, 10 interviews in a day. And you can be the best sales leader you want to be on the planet, but you yeah. cannot do 10 interviews in a day and give the 10th one the same and be present yeah. the same you can for the first one yeah. and you inevitably going to take shortcuts or just miss things and then end up in situations where we're hiring the wrong people and then we have to have these difficult conversations yeah. and, I'm, and, and, I'm, and I'm wondering I wanted to explore with you the whole idea uh, prevention versus cure so clearly yeah. we're saying there's an empathetic way to have those conversations 
What can we do to be better at hiring the right people? I think one thing that I do probably is I root for people in an interview, if that makes sense. I really want somebody to walk into a room and be their authentic self and probably create a position in the interview where they can really show their best self. But I think for me, it's also, and I know you probably shouldn't say this about interview, but it's knowing the skill set and really doing the proper competency-based questions to understand and get examples of where they've done it. And sometimes you, you're right, you can kind of have a tendency to want to rush through them as you get closer to doing many of them. But I think for me, it's really drilling down. And there's something, I've been told this many times that apparently I have it. They said, you're really good at hiring good people. You can see in people their potential. And, you know, it's probably the wrong thing to say about interview, but there's something in your gut and your instincts, which probably comes from previous experience. But if you feel it and you're not quite sure, don't, don't hire until you're really sure. Don't hire somebody until you're really sure that you believe in them, that the business believes in them. And also, I think you have to think about the context and where the business is. Like, you know, I've been at Salis a year and, you know, where I might have hired for somebody and what we needed for the business a year ago isn't always what you need for the business today. And I think sometimes we forget to think about the current context of our organisation. Where is our organisation? Is it on our transformational journey? Is it BAU? And I think, you know, thinking about what you need for the company today and for the next 12, 18 months, two years is important as well. Um, I would probably try not to do 10 interviews in a day. <laughs> I think that's probably the wrong thing, right? <laughs> and probably yeah. give yourself and, you know, it's only fair to your to the people interviewing with you that you don't do that. And you've got to sometimes push back in the organisation. Yes, we need to hire a pace, but bad hiring mistakes cost a lot of money and it's not fair to people. So sometimes you have to push back in your own organisation to say, this is fundamentally the wrong thing to do and we need to do this a little bit, maybe more at pace to make sure, you know, speed up front might cost more time wasted down the lot, you know, in the long run. And what is it you look for in a candidate other than the obvious kind of maybe job match or experience? Do you know what? One of the big things for me is people who can see their gaps and people who are open to coaching on those gaps, right? So, you know, you can never teach experience, right? That's one thing, right? You know, people will get experience and, you know, that you can't teach that. Um, I will look for people with high potential, so who they, you know, who've got the skills. But I also, the biggest thing probably for me is, you know, if a candidate says, if you candidate sits in front of you and you say like, what would you say your gaps are? If they can see their gaps and understand their gaps, and are really open to coaching and understanding how they fill that gap, that's a much, I guess, it's a much easier to work with that kind of individual and to kind of, I guess, bring that individual because they are open to the coaching, right? They know they're not great at something, but they want to learn and they'll take the coaching, listen to the coaching and act on the coaching. Whereas if you have somebody who thinks that I already know it all, no, I know this, that it's very hard if they do have a gap for them to hear what the gap is and for you to coach them on the gap. So I think being coachable and knowing your gaps are too big. And have you any insights on, because hey, sometimes people hire well, but then don't perform as well. And they're yeah. very good at interviewing. And so they, <laughs> they, they'll know some of the, where do you want to be in five years time? What, yeah. How would you describe your weaknesses type questions? And they're mm. well rehearsed in them. How do you yeah. get past that? Or see through it, I guess. I mean, you make, let's be honest, sometimes we make bad hires, right? And there's just no getting around that sometimes. But I, I think 
it, it is around saying, right, give me a specific example and then what did you do in that particular situation? Tell me, because you listen to people saying, we did and we did. And I said, okay, but what did you personally do? Talk me through what your actions were. And, you know, people may have seen it and will, will be well rehearsed in what they've seen other people do. But when you drill down deeper, 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 I think that's part of being a saleswoman, right? You're always want to know more. You're always more curious. You'll always keep going to get as much information as possible. So I think don't don't slide over the surface in the interviews. You've got to dig really deep for those examples and get really draw out of people what they've actually done in situations, you know, in deals, in you know, in their selling career. So because they people very quickly trip up when they not trip up, but when you try to pull out the level of detail out of them and they can't get into the detail level, then I think it becomes obvious that. They maybe haven't done it, but they've maybe observed it quite a lot. You mentioned that having difficult conversations was something that was difficult at the beginning that you had to kind of feel your way into yeah. it. What are say, some of the other challenges you might have had growing as a sales leader that you had to work your way into? Um, probably one thing for me, I guess, you know, where I grew up in Ireland, you're not particularly surrounded by business. You know, I didn't come from a family that has lots of business people in it or people that operated in the business world. So, you know, when I, you know, my first sales job was at Taleo um, and I was really bad for five months. Let me say the first few months I was terrible, but I learned to lean into people who are really good at it. And um, I guess for me, it was it was almost me getting that point of knowing you don't have to know it all and it's OK not to know it all. And if you don't know it all, ask the questions. And seeking out the people who were absolute experts at their craft and spending time with them and asking people. People generally will be quite generous and supportive. And if you ask them for help and they can see that you genuinely want to grow and evolve, they will help you. But I think a big thing for me was when Taleo got bought over by Oracle, I'd never been involved in a big corporate company before. And learning Oracle as an organisation um, was interesting. I always, up until that point in my career, that thought, being good at your job was enough but as you move into the big corporates like I had no clue what stakeholder management was I didn't understand how important it is to navigate the business you need to understand not just what you do today but where do you want to go next and what do you need to do to get there and who are the individuals that you need to build relationships from a stakeholder management point of view that will give you the buy-in and support to help you get there so I probably spent my first year at Oracle being really good at my job and then you see somebody else gets a promotion ahead of you and you're like, but I delivered more than them. And I was, and, but I went and I spoke to somebody and said, can you help me understand this? Why, why did this situation happen? And they said, because they managed their stakeholders really well. People knew about their progression desires. People knew what their skill gaps were. They got buy-in to kind of help get support to plug those skill gaps, etc. And I think learning that whole corporate world and how to kind of, I guess exist when in the big corporate world, what business structure looks like was not something I'd ever had experience of before. And I kind of had to learn as I went along really at Oracle. Mm. You see a lot of corporates, modern corporates, and they'll lavish a lot of perks on employees and try to create a, a, a really comfortable environment to work in. Can they be cruel places as well? can be but I think you know business is business at the end of the day and sometimes you know people have to have tough conversations you know for the bigger you have to think about the bigger view of the organization and that's what I've always thought about like 
know, I've unfortunately had to have people, you know, you know, have people take people out of a business. But if they're not in the right role that's been good for them and for the organization, mm-hmm. I have to think about the other kind of every other employee of that business because I've got people in the wrong role doing the wrong things and not being successful. That's not fair on the rest of the employees of the organization. I think I'd probably be quite lucky. I actually had a conversation with a guy one day and I was saying, I hear lots of people having lots of bad like stories or maybe not, not necessarily being treated the nicest. And he just said, I said, but I personally not experienced. He said they wouldn't dare. <laughs> but I think I, I, you know, and you do, you know, I've been part of like women in sales, obviously, and women in leadership and stuff. And I have to say, initially, I was a bit because I don't like the distinction between male and female and I don't see it. And I kind of struggled a little bit to think about why are we causing further differentiation by having these groups? Um, but it was actually my husband that said to me, he said, but you have to understand when, when there is a minority in existence, you have to create these groups in order to bring the balance back. And, you know, it made me, that's because I was involved obviously in women in sales and stuff. So I probably struggled a little bit about why are we creating more separation for women by having these women in leadership, having this. But when he explained it to me about that minority perspective and, you know, when you get the equality, you probably wouldn't need them, but equality does exist or inequality does exist. And whilst inequality does exist, you've got to create a support network that helps create the equality. When you say inequality, is that because the numbers aren't equal or people are treated unfairly? Um, I mean, I'm sure that probably was an element of treated unfairly. I, I was interesting, right, because there's diversity and inclusion, right? Um, Diversity has been asked to the dance, inclusion has been asked to dance, right? So there's there's a difference between diversity and inclusion. So you can ask to be part of a business, but given the opportunity to create. And you know, the one thing, and it's it's very, it's a very unconscious bias, right? And like I'm sure like when I've walked into rooms and I'm the female leader, and there's probably, you know, men maybe in my team who are like maybe 10, 15 years older, if I walk into the room, people by natural default won't assume that I'm the manager or the leader because I'm younger, female, etc. But it's not, I don't think it's always intentional, deliberate and, you know, on purpose. I think it's just an unconscious bias that exists, unfortunately. Um, I've experienced, so probably the one thing I've probably experienced personally is you can be in a meeting room as a woman and you will say something and it doesn't get listened to. And 20 minutes later, a guy will say the same thing and it gets, it will get heard. And I will, did I not just say that? But I, I didn't even realise there was a term called appropriation actually for that exact thing because it does exist. But I've got better at kind of being, I, I can have quite a loud voice in a room when I need to. Is it getting better, do you think? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely, 100%. I mean, our organisation, Zealous, I will have to say, I have never experienced being a female as being a differentiator in this organisation. Our CEO, John Hesher, I would say, you know, it's just not in his DNA to even operate or think in that way. I think you will find organisations absolutely where there is leaders where unfortunately it does exist. And I have experienced it. I'm not going to call people out. But I would say one of the things I love about Salas is our CEO's DNA is to, for, you know, to make people feel appreciated, to make people feel equal. I just doesn't. I remember after a couple of months here, I said, I've never, there's no, there's no room for ego in this business, Mm-mm. which is a really lovely place to work. I'm curious then, you mentioned the women in business as groups and networking groups. 
what has to happen in your opinion for those groups to be irrelevant just not you know that they, they shouldn't exist um i guess for you know for gender pay to be existing for women to be given equal opportunities for more women to be in the top c-suites um and you know but to have you know to have earned their way i think you've got to create an environment where you know if women do want to have children and have families that that doesn't have a negative impact on their career progression you know i think you know i've never as an individual i've just never considered being female as something that stops me getting somewhere. yeah 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 does yeah. come back from a thing but yeah. that's not to say that other people don't experience it um I just, getting I just wondered, sorry groups. go ahead please sorry i think having men part of those groups Mm. And for men to understand and listen and experience and maybe hear the women's perspectives outside of the work environment about the challenges they face and be open to hearing it and kind of, you know, saying, wow, I didn't even understand this. So we've both got a part to play. The women have got to, I guess, educate and help people, both men and women, understand what those experiences have been like and why it hasn't been a positive thing and for everybody else to be willing to listen. I'm just curious, Dad, I just wanted to spend just a moment longer on this because I yeah. see it with my own daughter and my daughter has brains to burn and she has said though that she, she doesn't want, she wants a job where she can work part time because for her she wants to spend time with children mm -hmm. and, 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 and that's, that's an important thing to her but at the same time she's very, very independent minded yeah. and, and, and I'm wondering are those two positions incompatible to that ultimate goal that we we're talking about? No, only if we say it is, right? We yeah. find a way. I think you can always find a way to make something work. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm going for the point is she's going to choose a job, or she says she may change her mind. By the way, yeah, she's going to choose a job where she won't earn as much. Th that's a fact. Because she wants to work part time or in a job where it's a nine to five, and that's just not rewarded the same way. And I, and 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 if a lot of women do that, then that impacts on 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 jet lifetime gender pay. So I'm curious to know how do you? What are the ideas to make that not an impact? Uh, you said that if women take time out of the workforce to 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 raise a family, well. If you're out of the workforce 20 years, that is going to impact versus two months. Yeah. Shouldn't. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I, I, how do you factor that in, I guess, so that you, it, is, it is seen to be equitable, <laughs> even though the figures may, might tell a different story? Yeah. Well, what do we do? Interesting. I mean, I think we've got to have better back to work opportunities, right, first of all. And how do organisations think about, um, you know, bringing people back into the workforce? What are, I think it's almost having a programme in place within a business to identify and understand that hiring is not only to be done in this way. And maybe there's other ways to think about hiring and bringing people into an organisation. And, you know, we're very traditional in our hiring, right? You post the role, you look for your candidates' experience. And actually, I guess understanding, from, you know, could we do more studies? Can we do more understanding, you know, understand with people having had time off? You know, does yeah. that skill set still become applicable when you come back into the workforce? Is there certain things that you, actions you can take around training, education, um, you know, doing certain programs that help people come back in and reintegrate back into the working environment? 
because they could be highly productive and highly yeah. kind of impactful and highly kind of, you know, they may give an awful lot more to the organisations than maybe organisations understand today. Um, I remember doing, um, I was asked when I was working in Salesforce to do a conversation, um, I think it was with SmartWorks, I'm trying to remember at the time, and they said to me, look, can you give and give a 15 minute speech about you know, women in the workforce and what it's like as a woman and your journey, because you didn't come from a very traditional business background, you know, high education, etc. you know, but you, and it, it was interesting because, first of all, I really didn't want to do it because it petrified me to go up there and talk about myself for 15 minutes. But actually just talking to people and get, helping people understand that, you know, we all have fears, we all have stuff that we question ourselves on. And just because you've been out doesn't mean that you can't come back in. And you know, both businesses and individuals need to understand that, you know, we need to support people who have got ambitions and, you know, want to come back and do that, create a platform that allows that to happen. Yeah, I agree, by the way. I think, I think what's missing is organizations don't make the effort for yeah. women who've taken considerable time out. I, I look at my wife, right? She trained as a teacher. She's doing an, another degree right now in psychology. and. But she took time out. When I say time out, she stopped working when my eldest was born. It's 27 years ago. And yeah. she's now said, I, I've asked her a few times, would you consider going back? And she says, I wouldn't have the confidence. Now, she's a confident, very you know, yeah. strong, confident individual in her own right. However, and I think what's missing is organizations specifically messaging yeah. to these women like that saying, look, we, we, we value the experience you've had in raising a family. You've been a leader. Yeah, you, have, yeah. you have shaped the minds of these individuals. You have looked after them. You've nurtured them. You have directed them. And mm -hmm. th that's miss. And, and, and by the way, not, not alone do we want you, but also we have this program whereby we'll onboard you. Yeah. You know, when I say correctly, I mean, We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll work with you to, you know, yeah. that confidence that you understandably you said that is missing now. It's, I don't know that it's a confidence. I think there, there has to be a doubt or maybe will I fit in? There's all those questions. But yeah. we'll, we'll work with you on those. I have not seen those kind of programs. Yeah, and that would be an interesting thing to be piloted, I guess, and see what value does it bring to know. We're in an age of our information is so readily available. You know, we can track, capture, audit, understand way more today than we've ever been able to, you know, you know, I think it was in New Zealand, they were doing like the four day weeks and people were becoming, you know, how do we challenge what has been tradition and what has been the norms and you know, how do we look at other ways of doing things? You know, it's interesting because I said when I interview people, I root for them to be successful. And I think we could do that an awful lot more for people coming back from having taken time off to create a platform in that process that allows them to flourish and for, yes, you know, I always say well-educated doesn't mean well you know, more, more educated doesn't necessarily mean more intelligent, right? And there is greater skills for people to bring to the table, I think, as a leader than just what they've learned through education. It is those life skills. I think being really human, you know, being able to be human with people, being able to be your authentic self and being someone who genuinely cares about other people and roots for their success. Uh, <laughs> I was asking a friend of mine last night, like, what is it that you see in me about being a leader? And she said, you're like the driving instructor. You let me get into the car. You let me make all my mistakes, but you're always there by my side. And if I'm going to take a wrong turn, you'll help me back onto the right direction. 
she said you're and then she said and then the training wheels come off and I can eventually go off on my own and do my own thing and then you move on to the next person or multiple people and I think yeah. you know, it's being that for those people who maybe are returning to work and doing that for them and not just the traditional people you hire into your team right yeah that's a great analogy that driving instructor <laughs> I, I, I love remember. an analogy I failed, I failed my first two driving tests because I did learn to drive the way we did back in Ireland back in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took my father's car out around yeah. the block a few times without anybody in, in it. I remember once there was a police car behind me and I didn't even know how to change gear and I'm going along in first gear. <laughs> Mad. Yeah. But, um, I drive normal on I was in England and uh, Sue was my driving instructor and she was brilliant because I had all these bad habits. Yeah. But we'd be driving along and all she'd say is, Paul, without looking in your mirror, what's the color of the car behind us? Yeah. Now, what she didn't say was, Paul, you need to look in your mirror. Yeah. You don't pay attention to it. And then she'd say, without looking down at the speedometer, what speed are you going at? And let's say I go, mm, 40. And, uh, and what zone are we in? <laughs> and it was just, just through her questions. Yeah. I, I became aware very quickly yeah. and, and and through awareness came change. Yeah. And I just thought, so that's why I, it, it kind of yeah. resonated with me as, as, a, I, as a... Yeah, I would always say to people, look, your job is to get to the destination. How you get there is your journey. My job as your leader is if you start to veer too off in the wrong direction, I'll nudge you back into the right direction and I'll help you stay on the right path to get there. But ultimately it's your journey and that's for you yeah. to and work through manage understand yourself and i'll be like it's like when you go bowling i'm the little bumper like you know on the side yeah. Yeah. that's in what i've heard in that is i've got your back you're out there yeah. you're ahead but i've got your back yeah 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 absolutely yeah, yeah. tell me in, in 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 your sales leadership career what are you most proud of <sighs> probably two things one are probably the people that I've mentored and I've managed coming into sales at their very early careers and seeing them absolutely flourish and fly like and you know you see people you know there's one particular girl she came into my team and her confidence wasn't the greatest she was a bit you know she was nervous she didn't believe in herself and I just kept saying there's no room for you in my team if you don't own your greatness and she said she always remembers that because I I my listening for her and my listening for my team is always how amazing they are going to be. Not where they are today, but what their future is. And I think when I look now at some of the people I, like who are business development reps, you know, we're doing, you know, the business development role, you know, doing the cold calling and are now, you know, senior leaders in other organizations. And that, that makes me really proud to see how those individuals have kind of grown and their journey and their path and having to be, had the opportunity to be a part of that with them and kind of, help them along in their careers and um, and the secondly was probably winning the women in sales award um, I, did, I was not aware of that oh, congratulations yeah. so, <laughs> so about two years ago i won um european sales director and it was across all organizations and all industries and um, my team nominated me which was amazing in the first instance but i was up against some incredible women like with probably more years experience and more senior roles than i was but you know, and I had to go through an interview process, I had to present, but I really focused on, I guess not the sales numbers and the sales results, because I think everybody does that, but it's almost who I was as a leader and who I, you know, 
the human element again of it and who I, you know, how I treated people and how I listened for people, championed people. And, you know, I just, you know, you kind of pinch yourself and you go, like, I grew up in Ireland in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the middle of the countryside where there was no business world and I'm suddenly winning an award for being the number one female sales director in, in Europe that year. Like, and you kind of pinch yourself and you go, how did this happen? Like, this is just little old me from Ireland that... Do you know, you yourself. Yeah. Well, for people who are not familiar with the geography, Louth is in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> and you're in the <laughs> middle of... flat accent. <laughs> That's bad, I know, it's bad. But it is, like, you know, and I didn't yeah. go to a school that was, you know, the school I went to, like, we didn't even have permanent classrooms at the time. We know we yeah. didn't, there was no canteens, yeah. there was no sports facilities. You didn't, I guess, necessarily come from an environment that produced, you know, people that were, like, top business leaders. Like, do you know what I mean? So, you know, but getting... Getting that acknowledgement from peers, yeah. people who who've been in an industry for a long time, who knew business really well, to kind of acknowledge you and say you've done a good job here. For sure, is the thing. I'm often skeptical of this term sales leadership because, yeah. and and I don't know whether it's a very recent thing, but it's like everybody now once you manage people, suddenly you're a sales leader. Yeah. And, and leadership is not management. It's a different thing entirely. Yeah, but when is. your team nominates you for an award like that, yeah. you know you're a leader. Be yeah. Because th that to me is the distinction is that do people want to follow you? That That's what makes yeah. a leader nothing else. I mean, yeah, there are traits and characteristics for sure, but the yeah. asset test, I guess, is. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a testament to treating people well. You know, when I, I was back in Ireland and I had left Core HO and I was looking for a job and I posted on LinkedIn looking for a new opportunity. And I was, like to say I was touched by the number of individuals who reached out to me and had said, when I was at Oracle and I was a business development rep and I wasn't even in sales, you helped mentor me, you coached me, you spent time with me. I'll never forget that, Roisin. I'm now at such and such an organization. I've spoke to the recruiter and they would almost like champion you into a business because they wanted to work with you because of how you'd made them feel and how you treated them. Not what you did, it was how you made them feel and what you had done for them. Yeah. And the opportunities you created with them and how people, I guess, it was that people understood it and felt it and appreciated it. And, you know, it's, we talk at Zealous about making people feel appreciated for the work that they do. That's one of our mantras, right? And it was just really touching to think, could you remember me? I only spent like two hours with you or four hours or whatever it was, right? But that, that made such an impact on people's life. That's something I think to be proud of. It's, but is that like the old mantra that says people won't remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. You said something else as well. You said, and, and understandably, you're very proud of having come from this little place in the middle of nowhere. But the thing is, that little, you know, growing up with nothing, right? That's that's what you said, more or less. Oh, with everything at the same time, right? Well, well, see, this is it. So you had that yeah. environment, which is which is everything. Yeah. Uh, that said, there are challenges you came up with that you had to fight for such as for example not being allowed to be a, a, an altar <laughs> yeah. don't take no for an answer <laughs> there was no at the time yeah. but but I, what i what i wanted to explore with you is this is that clearly shaped you and made you who you are and and made you resilient very if we give people too many supports are we not taking away that opportunity for them to grow? Are we, are we, are we, 
You know, the old, there's an old uh, metaphor about the caterpillar emerging from the chrysalis and somebody uh, it tries to help it mm -hmm. and, and, and opens Wait, up the, and, and weakens it in the process. Yeah, yeah. Is there an element of that, I wonder, can we, do we go too far in organizations providing too many, do we spoon feed people too much? I don't know if we spoon feed people too much. I think sometimes we put people who haven't had the right level of experience necessary into a role that maybe is a bit early for them and we forget to put in the support network for them, right? And I've seen other people tell people they're brilliant at something they almost instill in people before their time that they're not better than they are, but, you know, you, you don't be really honest and straight with people sometimes and people will you know, kind of I blow people up and say, you're great at this. And you almost overinflate people's kind of self, what they think they're capable of. And that doesn't really do people any favor. So I, I think I'm kind of mindful not to do that because yeah. you're not unfair to the individual. And I think the other thing is you don't always have to tell people what to do. You know, it's more about, you know, I had a conversation and I always ask for coaching. I'd asked my boss last week for some coaching and he said, remember to ask your team for what they think, what they recommend. You don't have to... Don't jump in to help people so because I do like to help people, but almost in that helping, you can sometimes disempower people. So I always have to go with the coach and you know get them to walk it through and stuff like that. And I think don't do stuff for people and don't give them the answer sometimes is much better advice and help them and helps them grow and develop much more and let them kind of think it through themselves, come up with their own recommendations and kind of try some things out. One of the interesting, one of the things my team, my always remember Oracle said is. You would always tell us it's okay to make a mistake. It's absolutely, actually, it's really good to make a mistake. When you make the mistake, let's share the mistake across the group. And it's not that it's bad and wrong, it's a learning. So I would actually welcome people to make a mistake. Just don't make it, you know, don't make it a second time, but let's share the mistake and what was the learnings from it. So yeah. if something went wrong, people didn't ever felt the need to hide it. They could be very open and transparent. And mm. the action was around okay, now what do we do? What have we learned from that? And what do we do differently the next time around? Because that's where the learning is for those people who are growing up and making careers and doing new, you know, maybe haven't been in the job for 20 years. But even if you've been in the job for 20 years, you can absolutely learn, right? But it's creating those learning opportunities and creating a space for mm. something to not work out perfectly. And that's okay, but what do we learn for next time? Mm. What, what do you want to be in your future? Do you want the real answer? <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, other than having Oprah Winfrey's job, let me think. Um, I think being um, being in you know doing what you're doing, interviewing people. I think no, I I have a real curiosity for human nature and human behaviour. Mm. I love understanding people and what drives people and what makes them get up in the morning. So there's an element of that. But on the complete flip flip side. I'd love to run an animal sanctuary, rescue sanctuary for animals. Um, okay. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah, I just, um, I have a real passion for animals and taking care of animals. I have lots of rescue dogs, etc. But I would mm. love to have a big piece of land and have it full of rescue animals. That would be the ultimate goal. Yeah, I, I actually, it's, it's quite interesting. We, we, we have two dogs rescues and well, we had a third, well, we had our second dog, Pip. She died back in May and... Oh. Um, so we, we kind of thought we'll leave it a while, but two weeks, two weeks went by and we thought, ah, it's just on the other dog, was, there were such pals and um, yeah, we, no went, we went to this rescue place in Mullinahome 
in Tipperary, in the right. middle of nowhere. Now, <laughs> like, in a penny man, I, I, I'm not a fan of Tipperary. I get <laughs> just crossing the border. <laughs> you get a rash. <laughs> so it was kind of a quick in and out operation. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting because they had this, they had a, a, and it was mostly greyhounds. And what shocked me, I didn't realize it at the time, is that the greyhounds, once their, their, their racing life is over, they're, that's it. They don't care about them anymore and they just get rid of them. Yeah. And, you, and they come of all ages. Like the one we had was, um, wasn't winning anything. It was only two years of age. Had siblings. Was, was, you, we could watch them on YouTube. But, and it's just it. They're just abandoned and they, and they don't care. And nobody You'll get me on my soapbox, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a yeah. vegan or a big lover of animals. It's like... Yeah. But you know what I found really difficult was that they brought out this, so they had this, this big, big field before, beside the animal rescue center. And it's all, it's all fenced in. And what they want to do is they want to bring out the, the dog and see do you get on and is there a chemistry there. And so they brought out this greyhound, seven years of age. And I felt really bad with this because she said, well, we have a two-year-old as well. And I said, well, could I take a look at the two-year-old? And you're almost rejecting the seven-year-old. Yeah. I and it was just... It was so big, right? It was really, really big, big dog. And I was conscious, my wife said, don't bring back a big dog. <laughs> and so it, she brought out this other ground, a two-year-old, and it just looked in this big field, it didn't look big. Oh, Lord, in the house, she's a monster. It's like a little reindeer, right? The Sorry? It's like a reindeer. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But they're, <laughs> she's so fast, right? they're, are, they're a fabulous dog. Now they're as thick as two short planks. Yeah. There's no question about it. If you're looking for any kind of intelligence in an animal, do not get a greyhound. But uh, it was funny because my daughter came with me. And we, so we, I, I couldn't go, okay, show me another dog. I said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll take her. Yeah. And uh, we put her into the back of the car and we're driving home. And my daughter is on, on her phone now learning about greyhounds. <laughs> what they're like. Oh. And she says, she says, um, it says here that you sh if you have any neighbors who have cats, you should talk to them because a cat is the only domestic animal that can't outrun a greyhound. <laughs> this is what Do you know what? I actually, when I was living in London, um, I ended up, my husband said, why do you always end up? But there was a guy that I work with, he's Canadian. I said, I'll mind your dog. So I took his dog like to her apartment in London and that it looked like a reindeer, had that kind of coloring of a reindeer. This was about this size in this two-bedroom apartment in London. But you know what? You would walk it and you would almost... Oh, I'd have to look back and see, was it still on the lead? Because they're so gentle and so placid. Like, they're just beautiful, beautiful creatures. Like Yeah, and they walk by other dogs, nothing. No. It's, and the little one is always squaring up to bigger dogs, but the ground, nothing. And yeah. uh, anyway, it's interesting. Um, we're, we're, I would rescue almost, every animal. I Sorry, every, I would rescue every animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you'd need to build a big ark, and then you could have them <laughs> two on by two. two. By two. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ocean, I, it's we're we're almost up against it on the yeah. clock. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I wanted to ask you, when 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 all this is done and you're 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 a pensioner or e or even beyond, how would you like to be remembered? Mm. Um, for someone who, I guess, was kind, was fair, was inclusive, treated people well and created opportunities for people and supported people on the way.
that's that's that that describes a wonderful person. It really is. Uh, and 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 from everything I've I've learned about you and what I've read about you is you you are that person. And so I want to thank you so much for your yeah, generosity you. and spending some time with me today. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. It's it's been a joy to talk to you. So thank you thank very you. much. And you, sir. You're very welcome. Thank you very thank much. You for being my guest. All right. Take care. Thank you.